You're listening to sermons from Redeemer Church in Round Rock, Texas. Redeemer is a gospel-centered, missional family learning and living the way of Jesus in the suburbs of Austin. All right, well, if you're not open to Mark chapter 11, I'll invite you to open to Mark 11. If you want to take notes this morning, uh, get your notes out. You can take notes on the app. You can take notes on your worship guide. Mark chapter 11 is a text that is often known as the triumphal entry. And it documents for us Jesus' arrival in Jerusalem. It, it begins, in other words, Jesus' final week of his life. Jesus' final week of his life. Um, this series in the Gospel of Mark, we're, we're going to walk week by week with Jesus as he makes his way toward uh, the cross and resurrection, arriving there by Good Friday and Easter. And this chapter, chapter 11, really b- begins the journey. Um, There are three main points this morning, if you're taking notes. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to look at Jesus' arrival. We're going to look at his arrival. We're going to look at the response of the people to Jesus' arrival. What can we learn from the response of the people? And then finally, we're going to talk about our response to Jesus' arrival. What is our response? Let me pray for us again, and we'll get back into the text. God, we want to stop and still our hearts and minds before you as we open your word. We pray that you would speak to us this morning. A lot of things that are going on in our hearts, in our lives, in our mind, in our church. And in this moment, we ask that you would be our teacher. Pray that you would instruct us through your word. We pray that you would encourage us, that you would convict us, correct us, wherever we are and whatever we need from you. Would you you move in our hearts through your word? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's look at his arrival. Look back at uh, verses one through seven. Let me read it again for us. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany, at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, and he said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever set. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. And they went away, and they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. Stop for a minute. The journey to Jerusalem is almost complete. They arrive to the Mount of Olives. uh, The Mount of Olives is the home of two villages, Bethany and Bethpage, they're just three miles east of Jerusalem. And this arrival is a meaningful moment. It's a meaningful moment. Listen to what New Testament scholar and historian N.T. Wright says about this arrival. He describes it this way. He says, mile after uphill mile. It seems a long way, even today in a car. You wind up through the sandy hills from Jericho, the lowest point on the face of the earth, through the Judean desert, Climbing all the way. Halfway up, you reach sea level. You've already climbed a long way from the Jordan Valley, and you still have to ascend the fair-sized mountain. It's almost always hot, since it seldom ever rains. It's almost always dusty as well. Even when you drive rather than walk from Jericho to the top of the Mount of Olives, the sense of relief and excitement when you reach the summit is intense. At last, you exchange barren, dusty desert for lush, green growth, particularly at Passover time at the height of spring. 
at last you stop climbing, you crest the summit, and there before you, glistening in the sun, is the holy city, Jerusalem itself, on its own slightly smaller hill across the narrow but deep valley. Bethany and Bethpage nestled on the Jericho side of the Mount of Olives. Once you pass them, Jerusalem comes into view almost at once. The end of the journey, the pilgrimage to end all pilgrimage. It's Passover time in the city of God. I love that quote when I came across it this week because I think what it does for us is it helps us picture and envision not only the scene, but what people must have been feeling as they were following Jesus to Jerusalem. And it's not just the 12 disciples who have made this journey with Jesus. A large crowd follows him. It wouldn't be a stretch at all to say that it was a caravan of sorts or a parade. Maybe we could think of it that way, a parade of people following Jesus toward Jerusalem. If you look over just a few verses previously in your Bible in Mark 10 verse 46, Mark tells us that there's a great crowd who is specifically following Jesus, right? It's Passover time, so the journey to Jerusalem, most, uh, a lot of Jews are making this pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, one of their most important festivals and holidays. And so they're on their way already, but Mark notes that there's a specific crowd that's following Jesus, wants to see what is Jesus going to do when he gets there. John's gospel in John 12, 12, John tells us that there's not only a great crowd that's following Jesus, up this mountain toward the holy city, but that there's also a great crowd that's already there, that's waiting at the gates, that has heard the message about Christ and what he's been doing and what he's been teaching and his interactions with the Pharisees. They've heard about him and the but he's trending. You could say that hashtag Jesus is trending. And in the city, they're waiting for him to get there when he arrives. They're crowded around the gates. So this is the scene. There's much anticipation, much speculation that this Jesus of Nazareth might just be the Messiah. He might be the promised one that would come and set them free. There are many questions, I'm sure, about what he would do and how he would do it. After all, he's been doing wonders. He's healed the blind just recently in in, in the last section of Mark. He's raised the dead, raising Lazarus from the dead. He's casted out demons. What's he going to do when he arrives in Jerusalem? This is the scene. Now, I find verse 2 and 3 incredibly interesting. If you are reading this text and you're paying attention to the passage, you would too. What's going on here? There's some really specific instructions that Jesus gives to his disciples. Look at it again. And he said to them, two of his disciples, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. Imagine these guys are like, hmm? Okay. Just, just walk in the village? Yep. Donkey waiting on us? Yep. Just, just take it? Is it yours? Nope. <laughs> I imagine this is, what, what if they run out and yell at us? Tell them that the master needs it. Okay. And they do. And it happens. Just as Jesus said it would happen. What do we make of this? I have two things. One, an observation. And then the second is a question. Here's the observation about verses two and three. The observation is that Jesus is in full control of things. Do you see this? Don't miss this. He's in full control of things. We can trust that everything that the scriptures tell us that Jesus does, everything that the scriptures tell us will happen to Jesus from this point forward. None of it is a surprise to him. None of it. Jesus is in full control. In fact, do you remember what Jesus said in Mark 10, 33 through 34? 
Remember that from last week? You can look back there if you want. Jesus is journeying to Jerusalem. He's talking to his disciples on the road. He says to them, he says, we're going to Jerusalem and I'll be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes. They're going to condemn me to death. Deliver me over to the Gentiles, to the Romans, where I'll be mocked and spit on and flogged and killed. And after three days, we'll rise. Jesus is in full control. Jesus isn't reacting. We can be sure of that as we keep walking with him toward the cross and resurrection. Jesus is not reacting. Jesus is enacting the will of the Father with every step. And then I have a question as I sit with verses two and three. My question is this, why a donkey? Hmm, interesting. Why a donkey? Well, I think first and foremost, it's probably strategic on Jesus's part. If Jesus were to come leading this parade of excited people riding a white war horse, he wouldn't even make it through the gates of Jerusalem without the Roman soldiers arresting him. So I think it's strategic. But more than that, I think it's symbolic. It's important for us to know as we, as we read this that this very same thing, very similar to what Jesus is doing, ha- had already happened in Israel's history. 170 years prior to Jesus entering uh, uh, Jerusalem with a caravan of people, with excitement, with messianic excitement, this same thing had already happened 170 years previously. At this time, Israel was under the rule of not the Romans, but the Greek Uh, the Greek empire of Seleucid. Seleucid was the successor of Alexander the Great. And the Greeks had come and had destroyed Israel's temple. They were forcing the Jews to worship pagan gods. And there was one particular priest of Israel that had just had enough of this at the time. And he turned violent. And he gathers a whole uh, army, really, if you will, of, of folks out in the wilderness. And they lead a revolt. They lead a revolt against the Seleucid's empire. And surprisingly, this revolt is successful. It's called the Maccabean Revolt. Against all odds, the Maccabeans, they win the war. They free Israel. Their leader was a man named Judas Maccabees. They called him the Hammer. What a name. Pretty violent dude. The Hammer. And as they win victory and free Israel... Judas Maccabee, on December the 25th, 164 BC, rides into Jerusalem with crowds of people following him and crowds of people receiving him, but he rides in on a white war horse to the shouts of, Hosanna, save us, victory, the waving of palm branches. He restores the temple. And for 80 years, Judas and his brother rule as king of Israel. For 80 years, Israel experiences freedom. And many, for many, this is seen as the second exodus. It's that significant in Jewish history. It's what is celebrated even still today by Jews during the season of Hanukkah. It's this, this 80 years of freedom. Why just 80 years? That would be the question that we should ask. Well, because after 80 years, the Romans came to power. And when the Romans come to power and start to occupy Israel again, it becomes clear that Judas Maccabee, though he was a great warrior king, was not the Messiah. He was not the one who would rule forever that the prophets talked about. Though they thought he might be, he was not the Messiah. He's not the one whose kingdom would be established to the ends of the earth. He's not 
the Messiah. And so what do the Jewish people do? Well, they set their eyes forward and they wait and they keep looking and expecting the true Messiah that God promised. And so perhaps, just perhaps, what Jesus is doing here is symbolic. Jesus is riding in as Israel's true Messiah, but not a war-making Messiah on a white horse, but a peacemaking Messiah on a humble donkey. I've come not to make war with Rome. I've come to make peace by the blood of my cross. Not only is it symbolic, but I want you to know that what Jesus is doing and riding on a donkey, it's specific. It's specific. What do I mean? Turn with me in your Bible to Zechariah chapter 9. Flip over to Zechariah chapter 9. Who is Zechariah? Zechariah is a prophet of Israel who spoke 500 years before Jesus, and he speaks with great detail. God speaks through him about the coming Messiah, specifically what he would do, how he would come and what he would do. Jesus is making a very specific statement here about who he is. In other words, Jesus is in no way shy about who he is and what he's come to do. Jesus by getting on a donkey and riding into Israel is making it clear, I am the king. Look at Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughters of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. See, Jesus couldn't be any more clear about who he is and what he's come to do. He is the coming king. He is the righteous one, sinless, good, holy, full of all authority and power. Having salvation is he, his face toward the cross. He will atone for sins and he will make peace with God. He will purchase renewal and redemption for all who turn to him, all who crown him as king of their lives. Humbled, mounted, on a donkey, he makes his way into the city. He is in full control. He is ready to do the Father's will. He is ready to rescue all those whom God calls, ready to lay down his life as a ransom for many. This is Jesus' arrival. What about the response? How will he be received? Look at verses 8 through 10 again. How will he be received? Verse 8. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. What's going on here with the cloaks and the leafy branches? Well, the Israelites are leaning into tradition. They're leaning into tradition, specifically the traditional ways of anointing the king of Israel. Flip over with me now in your Bible to 2 Kings chapter 9. 2 Kings chapter 9. If you're not familiar with the Bible, you could think of 2 Kings as kind of a two-volume book of history, uh, of Israel's history, and particularly the kings of Israel and, and how they ruled Israel. Did they, were they faithful to God and did they lead people into obedience of God's law? Or were they, uh, uh, like many of them were, unfaithful kings who fell in love with the things of the world and worshiped the idols of the nations? Maybe if in the U.S., if we had a two-volume book of every president and how they impacted our country, positive and negatively, that's similar to what uh, First and Second Kings would be like. 
And in 2 Kings chapter 9, verse 13, we are told of what happens when Jehu is anointed king, one of the many kings of Israel. And chapter 9, verse 13 says this. It says, In haste, every man of them took his garment, taking off their coats, every man, and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet, and they proclaimed, Jehu is king. And so what's happening here is that they're leaning into tradition of how kings were anointed. And so as Jesus is entering, moving toward Jerusalem, this caravan, this parade of people, their men are taking off their cloaks and they're laying them down on the ground, a, an ancient uh, red carpet of sorts, you could think of this. And, and Jesus is walking in. It, it, it's an unbelievable, unbelievable act of reverence that they're doing here for Jesus. Reverence and honor. And then it says that there are others who are waving palm branches, which again, they're leaning into Jewish history. In the same way that fireworks are kind of a symbol of freedom for us in the U.S., palm branches were a symbol of victory. And so they're basically claiming victory. They're, they're calling their shot before the, before the ball goes in. They're claiming victory. Jesus is going to save us. This man is our king. What about the singing and the shouting? What's going on with that? Well, they're singing and they're shouting the words of Psalm 118, specifically verses 25 and 26. Psalm 18, verse 25 and 26 says, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us victory. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And so they're, they're shouting the words of Psalm 118. This was a song that would have been sung by the Israelites every year during Passover. Maybe you could think of it as a Passover carol of sorts. We have Christmas carols that we sing every, every year at Christmas. This was a Passover song that they would have sung every year as a people. And they're taking the words which were written to remember God's faithfulness of saving the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. That's what Psalm 118 is about. Give thanks to the Lord. His steadfast love endures forever. He's rescued us. He saved us. And they're taking those words, and now they're applying those words to Jesus of Nazareth. Save us now, they say. Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. God, he is your anointed king. What a scene. There is hope that is building. There is hope that is abounding. That it's finally time. This is finally our year. Maybe a lot like Dallas Cowboy fans right now. The time has come. It's finally our year. What will he do when he gets there? How will he save us when he enters the city? How will he free us? What will renewal look like? All of this is building and it's building and it's building and you can feel it as you work your way back through the text. And then we get to verse 11. Look at verse 11 again. And he entered Jerusalem and he went into the temple. And when he looked around at everything, it was already late. And he went out to Bethany with the 12. So anticlimactic. <laughs> Jesus looks around. The, the idea of the Greek here is that he deliberately moves and he takes it all in. He's considering the temple. All that it should be. All that it meant to be is the dwelling place of God and what it has become. And Jesus will act in the temple, actually, but he saves it for tomorrow. We'll see that next week. It's late. It's been a long journey. Tired. Maybe he's even hungry. Let's go back to Bethany. Likely it's Lazarus' house. He goes back to Lazarus' house, spends the night. Tomorrow, he'll deal with the temple. 
But this is how it ends. What a scene. And so the question is, what do we do with it? (laughs) What do we we make of this scene? What should our response be? What's the point? As I sat with the text this week, I think there are two primary applications for us that I want to share. And the first is this. We ought to see the crowds. We ought to see the crowds that are there cheering Jesus on, excited, fired up even. We ought to see the crowds and we ought to learn from them. These faithful following, Hosanna shouting, cloak throwing, palm branch waving followers of Jesus teach us something about what you and I are capable of. And that is fickle faith. Fickle faith. They teach us that it's possible to be a fan of Jesus, but not a devoted follower of Jesus. In other words, It doesn't take long for all of this excitement and all of this hoopla and all of this hopefulness and even these exuberant shouts of praise and these acts of reverence before the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't take long for all of those things to turn, to dissipate. Many of these same people who are today shouting, save us, blessed is he, in a matter of days won't be around anymore. When Jesus, who is in full control, stands trial, when Jesus is handed over to the Romans, they'll be gone. In fact, it's possible that many of those who were shouting, Hosanna, save us, blessed is he, could very well be the same ones that are in the crowd a few days later shouting, crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas. It's possible. In other words, For many of those in the crowd, Jesus won't be enough for them after long. They will look to something else. They'll give up on him. They'll turn away from him. And I think we should pay attention to this. I think we should examine our own hearts. I think we should ask ourselves the question, how far will I follow the Christ? You see, we too can quickly turn from Jesus. We too can quickly turn from him in the moments that he stops meeting our expectations. When his will for our lives looks different than our will for our lives. And perhaps some of you were there. Whether it be with your marriage or with your kids. You had hopes and prayers that you labored for your children. And you're wondering if God even heard those prayers, does God even care? Perhaps with your career, with your work, maybe with your health. It wasn't supposed to go this way with my life and with my body. Well, his will for our lives, when his will for our lives look different than our will for our lives, what will we do? What about when the truth of his word begins to run contrary to the fads of this world? What will we do? Will we keep following him knowing that his word is the word of all authority and that the fads of this world come and go? Will we keep following him when maybe it makes us uncomfortable or it puts us in certain categories? Will we push through the discomfort or will we push eject? Will we do what so many in the culture do and that's to seek to make Jesus in our own image? Or when suffering doesn't seem fair in our lives, when that happens, what will we do? Will we keep following him? When he doesn't meet our expectations, when suffering doesn't seem fair, when we wonder if we can truly trust his promises. And here's what I've observed, that this happens in all of our lives. 
All of us will hit a moment, a a faith crisis, and maybe you're thinking, I'm so on fire for Jesus. I will follow him wherever he calls and wherever he leads. And I'd say to you, keep at it. (laughs) Keep at it. Keep at it. Because we all will hit this moment, this wall, when our expectations aren't met and we start to wonder, can I trust him? Can I trust him? And you see, there are some who will, who will turn from Jesus outwardly and openly. They'll turn from him outwardly and openly. And we see this in our world today, don't we? There's so many that are deconverting. You probably know people that you grew up with or maybe you followed Jesus with and they were so on fire for the Lord and now they're even openly, publicly saying, I'm not a Christian anymore. I've let go of my faith. But you know what concerns me more than that is that I think there are many others who will do this inwardly. They'll do it silently in their hearts. When Jesus doesn't meet the expectations for them, we'll start to turn from him silently in our own hearts. Why? Well, because suffering is real. And disappointment is real. And hurt is real. And, and maybe, maybe you've even been hurt by Christians or you've been hurt by the church. And this is real. And our enemy, the great enemy of our souls, he loves to lead us towards cynicism and doubt. He loves to take our pain and he loves to twist it and taint it and taint it and make us kind of view Jesus through twisted and tainted lenses. I just want to ask you this morning, where are you with Jesus? Where are you? Will you examine your heart toward him? Your expectations of him? And the reason that I ask this question is because while while these things are real, we have expectations for him and we have hopes, there is nothing in our text today that would cause us to think that we can't trust him. There's nothing that happens in our text today that would cause us to think we can't follow him all the way, all the way to the end. In fact, it's the opposite, which leads me to my second application point. One, we need to see the crowds and we need to learn from the crowds and examine our own hearts and our own expectations for Jesus. And then number two, we need to see the real Jesus. We need to see him in the text and we need to trust him supremely. In fact, it's the reason that I wanted to just walk through the text the way that I did this morning. I wanted us to truly see him. I wanted us to see Jesus as the king in full control of things. I wanted us to see Jesus committed to doing the Father's will. I wanted us to see Jesus doing exactly what the prophet said that he would do. I wanted us to see him doing exactly what God the Father prepared before the foundations of the earth for him to do. Doing all of it in real time, in real history, out in the open for us to see. I wanted us to see him keeping his word. I wanted us to see him with all power and all authority, the lion of Judah, yet humble on a donkey coming to give his life as a ransom for many. Hear me, church. If Jesus Christ keeps his word to the point of death on a cross for you, you can trust him. If he keeps his word to the point of death on a cross for you, you can trust every single one of his promises. Listen to me. He will not meet all of your expectations. He will not. He will not meet all of your expectations. But he will never break a promise that he has made to you in his word. He will never break a promise to you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. His love for you will never run out. 
There is no sin that could separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Your life, if you are by faith in Christ Jesus, your life, as Colossians 1 tells us, it is hidden with God in Christ. Your life is enveloped in the righteousness of Christ. Your sin might abound, but his grace abounds more. Through repentance and faith, there is forgiveness and redemption that is available to you in all things. And you might say, Jordan, you don't really know who I really am. You don't know what I've done. You don't know the deepest and darkest sin. If you did, you would never talk to me. You would never accept me. And the scriptures would say that he will cast that sin as far as the east is from the west. He is sovereign over your life. You can trust that. He is enough for you. You are justified in him. You don't need to perform. You don't need your kids to perform to make you somebody. You are enough in Jesus Christ. It's a promise that he's made to you. His ways lead to life and he is better than sin. He has promised to do good to you. There is no sorrow that he will not redeem. There is no injustice that he will not undo. Church family, if he keeps his word to the point of death on a cross, you can trust him. You can trust him. And I want to ask you, what does it look like for you today to trust him? What does that look like for you? What is the thing in your life today that you need to entrust to him? You can trust him. You see, this morning, we see the king arriving. This morning, we see him arriving. The humble servant king coming to give you all of the father's blessings. Would you see him? And would you renew your faith in him? The humble servant king coming to win us back, to free us from the penalty of sin, to defeat our enemy, to overcome the grave, and to shepherd our souls to glory. This is our king. What a savior. What a savior. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you keep your promises. You are the ancient of days. And we thank you that you have made yourself known to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And we thank you for your holy scriptures that anchor our souls, that remind us of who you are and what is true. And I pray that this morning that you would help us to see you in all of your glory, in all of your sovereign grace, in your great love for us, that it might renew our faith in you and it might help us to trust you today. We wanna be a church family that trusts you, that obeys you. We don't wanna lay our expectations on you, Lord. We wanna lay ourselves at your feet. And I pray that you would help each one of us and as we respond to your word, that you would meet us in a unique way, in a special way with the grace that we need today. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Thanks for listening. If you are looking for info, find our website at RedeemerRR.org or download the Redeemer Round Rock app from the Android or iOS app store.